0: I was like, the music's still going on, but the screen shows it's done. Well, welcome back. I am excited to be here today to be continuing in our study on this letter of 1 Thessalonians. If you've been with us, this is week six that we're in this letter, Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, where he's writing to encourage them, to let them know that he had missed them so dearly when he had to depart from them. Uh, Paul planted that church in Thessalonica and had to leave abruptly And so he's writing to let them know that he still cares for them, that he wants the best for them, and that that best is pursuing after God. And so we've been journeying through this letter, seeing what Paul has to say, how Paul seeks to encourage their faith, how they're being known for their faith as they live out this following of Jesus day in and day out as a community of believers, much like us right here, who are seeking to live out our following of Jesus Christ as a community of believers. And so Paul writes in this letter to encourage them to check in with them. And so we're trying to learn from it as we move through it together. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 4 and see what the Lord has to do with it. But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we just come humbly before you. Lord, your word is such a gift and a blessing to us. Lord, we treasure it. And the fact that we can come each and every week and open it together and learn from what you have to say. And Lord, that speaks right to the heart of where we are at today. Lord, may you give us ears to hear what you have to say. May we not miss what it is that you are speaking today in this era to your church and to us as your disciples. And so, Lord, soften our hearts. Give us open ears that we may hear your word today. Lord, may nothing that I say get in the way of what it is that you are declaring. But Lord, may your words uh, just come forward. I pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was thinking earlier this week about my childhood and how growing up, uh, one of my desires as a child was to please my parents. And maybe you can relate to this, but I remember specific instances in my life where I really wanted to please my parents. I remember in church when I was a young child, my mom worked as a hall monitor at our church and my teachers would tell me if I, dis- if I was not behaving They would say, Jason, do we need to send you out in the hall with your mom? And that snapped me right away into behaving better because I want to please my parents. I didn't want to go out in the hall because I knew that that would not please my mom if her son got kicked out of Sunday school. There was other times too, sports, as I grew up and played sports, that I, I wanted to do well. I wanted to be successful as I played sports because I thought that would make my parents proud. If their son went out and did great at baseball or football, that they would be proud of how well I was doing. There was one instance when I crashed my car as a high schooler, and I remember feeling oh, this will really displease my parents, dreading calling my mom at that time to let her know I've crashed my car and I need some help. Even as an adult, there's some desire within us often to still please our parents and honor our parents and maybe you can relate to this maybe you can think through your life and think to those instances where you've wanted to honor or please your parents but it made me think how much more should we be seeking to honor and please God our heavenly parents or our, sorry our earthly parents that we've been given are to represent Christ and God in our life and yet as we want to honor them even more so should we desire to honor God our heavenly father But what does it really mean to please God? What does it really mean to make God proud as we go about our lives here on this earth? As we seek to follow the ways of Jesus, how do we please God? How do we honor him with our lives? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you would turn with me to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, you can grab a pew Bible if you didn't bring your own Bible, or it'll be up on the screen, or you can find it on your phone on an app. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at what Paul has to say about how we seek to please God with our lives. And there's a lot in these eight verses we're going to be looking at today. It's pretty deep and meaningful stuff that Paul digs through, and yet it's so important for the church today. And I've been wrestling with it all week, how to best approach this, how to best get into this word that Paul has for us. And I think that the Lord wants to use it to speak to us today, to show us what it means to follow him in our culture and in our era that we find ourselves in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So, Paul starts off chapter four, and he's making a little shift in what he's doing. And he he uses this word finally to begin this section. But Paul kind of uses it like a preacher who says uh, that they're almost done, and then they keep preaching for another 15 or 20 minutes. Like they say in conclusion, but then they keep going, and you're thinking, I thought this was the conclusion. So Paul says finally to begin this section, but this letter is far from over. Paul still has more to say and more to teach the Thessalonians, so it's kind of a a false finally, but it marks a transition in the letter, a transition from Paul's joy at the good news of how the Thessalonians are doing and their steadfast faith and love that they're exhibiting to the importance of what's coming in Paul's instructions. So, Paul's been celebrating how they're doing, and now he's starting to give them some instructions for what it means to live out their faith. And Paul says, We ask and we urge, which conveys the importance of what's coming. He uses these two words to let them know take note. This is important stuff that he's about to talk about. And the same is true for us today that it's important when we see Paul here say, We ask and we urge you that there should be a pause. That we should pay more attention. Our ears should kind of perk up that what is Paul going to say here that is so important that he's asking and urging the Thessalonians to pay attention. And it's because the implications of what Paul is saying are deep for our faith and for our life. And Paul reminds them that he's already taught them these things. These are not new concepts that he's unpacking for them. But these are things that Paul has taught to them when he was currently in Thessalonica on how to walk and how to please God. And Paul uses this metaphor of walking multiple times throughout his letters in the New Testament. And it's a common metaphor he uses to convey uh, the listener an ongoing daily endurance that's required in following Christ. You see, following Christ is not just a decision that we make once in our life and we say a prayer and check we're done. Now we can go about our lives until we die and we'll have eternity in heaven. But following Christ is a daily occurrence. It's a daily commitment to die to ourselves, to pursue God's will in our life, to put aside me and to seek after Christ. And so it's something that we strive to do daily, ongoing. And Paul lets him know to to do this, to walk and to please God. And the idea of pleasing God here is not an attempt for the Thessalonians to try to earn their salvation, because they're saved by God's grace. Or rather Paul wants them to know that because of this grace they experience that their response because of the grace they experience should be to live in pursuit of being set apart that they would walk to please God a pursuit of holiness that's found in spirit empowered sanctification which is pleasing to God. And so Paul is urging the Thessalonians that they would do this, that they would implement these things into their life, and in doing so, that their lives would walk and please God. And it isn't that the Thessalonians aren't doing any of this. That's not what Paul is saying. We see at the end of verse 1, Paul says, just as you are doing. So there's some element of we know that the Thessalonians are putting these things into practice. They've been instructed in these things by Paul and his companions, and they've been doing them, but Paul wants to encourage them in their pursuit that they would do these things more and more, that they would not just stop with what they've been doing, but they would continue forward doing this. And it's a great encouragement for us, too, as many in this church are pursuing after the Lord and seeking to walk in His ways. That's not that there's a critique that we aren't doing these things, perhaps, But Paul wants to encourage us to do them more and more. makes me think of, you know, reading your Bible. That it's not that you're not reading your Bible, but that you would be encouraged to continue to do it more and more. That you'd pray more and more. That you would serve more and more. That you would mentor others and disciple them more and more. That you would submit your life to Christ more and more each and every day. Paul reminds the Thessalonians in verse 2 that as they seek to walk and please God, they know the right path to faithfully doing this. Paul has given them the instructions when he previously was there in Thessalonica as to what the Lord had commanded Paul to tell them. And he's laid that out for them. He's shown them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And now he's just kind of reiterating it and reminding them of what it is. It isn't that they're going about blindly trying to follow the ways of Jesus, hoping to get it right. But they have the instructions, they have the ways that they are called to live properly as disciples of Jesus. While Paul has said that he's already taught the Christians in Thessalonica what it looks like to follow Jesus, he's going to expand upon that in verse 3. And we find that Paul launches into this section of instructions of how one seeks to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to conduct sorry, how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So Paul here shifts into this section Where one can know how to walk and please God by understanding the will of God. If you are wanting to please someone, you need to know what it is that they want. You can't just guess and hope that you get it right. But if you want to walk and please God, then you need to know His will. And there's an importance in understanding what the will of God is for us. What God desires and how we can walk in His ways and please Him. And thankfully, God has given us that right here in the Bible. He's given us an instruction manual to follow, to seek after his ways so that we may know what it is that the will of God is. But the will of God should be a driving factor in our lives. This should be at the forefront of our minds that we are seeking to honor God's will in our lives, that our lives are more about God's will than my will, that they're more about what pleases God than what I desire. That they're even about what breaks God's heart more than what breaks my heart. And so we want to know what it is that pleases God. And Paul lets us know here that the will of God in our lives is our sanctification. Sanctification is that idea of to be washed, to be cleansed and consecrated, set aside for a special purpose. As Christians, it's that process in which God is transforming our lives He's making us fit for a holy purpose and making us more and more like him. This includes a change of heart, a change of desires within us as we become more like Christ, a desire to serve and to love God, and a submission to his authority. These are all part of that process of sanctification, of becoming sanctified as followers of Jesus. Paul writes that the will of God is for us to be sanctified. And that this occurs by abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, this isn't the only way or the only element of sanctification. And and don't hear that in this text that Paul's saying that the only thing we need to worry about in sanctification is sexual immorality. But Paul's honing in on that with this letter in this moment. There's other aspects to our sanctification. There's other aspects that we should be pursuing as followers of Christ, seeking to live as holy, set-apart disciples of Jesus. But in this text, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's choosing to hone in on this one aspect of the Thessalonians' sanctification, which is sexual immorality. Paul writes that it is the will of God to abstain from sexual immorality. Why would Paul speak of this? Why would he make a big deal about it and hone in on this with the Thessalonians? Well, it's because this was an issue in the Roman Empire that was occurring. It was something that was prevalent throughout their region, throughout the whole Roman Empire. Sexually immoral behavior was endorsed by the Roman Empire, encouraged by the Roman Empire. I was reading this week in some commentaries that defined what was occurring in Rome at this time, that during this period, wives in Rome were expected to remain faithful in marriage, but husbands were not held to the same standard. And thus husbands would often have affairs with other women outside of marriage. Young men were encouraged to be sexually active prior to marriage. Cities were famous for their prostitutes, especially those who were on major trade routes such as Thessalonica. It was on a major trade route. It would have had lots of people coming in and out of the city. And some members of the church, having been Gentiles and participated probably in these Roman sensualities prior to coming to Christ, likely still felt an addictive pull to such things. And as I read about those elements of Rome and, and that culture, I couldn't help but feel that it was familiar to our culture today, to the things that we see on TV, the things that we see in our cities, the things that are encouraged. And so Paul, in this letter, is not just speaking to the Thessalonians, but he's also speaking to us today. That this is just as relevant for where we are at today here in Springfield as it was when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians back during the Roman Empire. And Paul uses this term when he says sexual immorality. He uses the Greek term pornea, which referred to not only sexual immorality, but it covered adultery, fornication, and other sexually immoral aspects. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is he is forbidding any activity outside the bounds of a heterosexual marriage. And Paul continues in verse 4 laying out what this means. By telling us to abstain from sexual immorality, that it looks like what it looks like. And letting the Thessalonians know that this means controlling one's body. In verse 4 there, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You see, the idea here that Paul is getting at is that if we are to seek God's will for our lives, that this will mean that we are seeking to abstain from sexual immorality by controlling our bodies and our desires. And this is extremely important in our culture today, that we hold to Paul's instructions. There are so many who will tell you to pursue whatever makes you feel good, to do whatever you want, and they'll encourage you to express your sexuality however you want, whatever you desire. And yet this is not God's way. This is not what it looks like to live in the will of God, and it is sinful. We must seek to hold to the standards of sexuality that we see laid out in Scripture. This means that we uphold marriage as being between one man and one woman. It means we uphold that sex is created to be expressed only within a monogamous marriage. It means that we must uphold that anything outside of this is not God's will, and thus is sin. And this includes adultery, homosexuality, pornography, and even the books we read and the things we watch on TV. My heart breaks for how far we've come as a culture in the last 30 years, for how far we've strayed from God's intention for us as Christians and as followers of him. The people who I've watched, well-meaning Christians and churches, who've moved away from God's will out of a desire to be culturally relevant or out of a desire to support and love their children or grandchildren. And yet this is not the answer Moving further away from God's word to try to express love to those who are in your family is not the answer. The answer is that we would seek God's will and our sanctification under the authority of his word. Paul's instructions to control our bodies are clear that we do them in holiness and honor. And if we are seeking to live in this manner, then we must seek to abstain from sexual immorality. And Paul knows the culture that he's writing to. He knows the society that the Thessalonians live in and relates this call for holiness and honor with the opposite way in which the Gentiles are living in passions of lust. Paul anchors that the Gentiles live this way because they do not know God. Thus, there should be a difference in how we live if we do know God. If we have come to a saving faith, it should change how we live our lives. And not only does living in sexual immorality put us outside the will of God, but it even impacts our relationships with others. In verse 6, Paul says uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You see, Paul warns the Thessalonians to be careful to not transgress and wrong his brother. Paul knows that things like adultery impact the lives of others, not just those who commit it, but that there is a ripple effect when we live in sin that is far-reaching. Spouses and families are impacted, and thus a wronging of one's brother. The ESV Expository Commentary states that many are trespassed against any time someone pursues their lustful desires. Certainly one's spouse and children, whether present or future, but also the other person in the sexual act and all of their own family relations, and even Christians in the community among which they worship. You see, Paul makes it clear that we must be aware of how we wrong others because the Lord is the avenger of all things. And Paul's already solemnly warned them about this. This isn't new information. He's told them the importance of this before. But Paul knows that there are dire consequences of ignoring God's instructions concerning sexuality. Sex was created to be within the context of marriage and a joyful gift in its proper place. But outside of the marriage of a husband and wife, sex brings injury to others as well as judgment from God. And this is why Paul is saying it's so important, because there is an eternal significance at play in how we pursue following God's will in our lives, And this is why we must stay true to Scripture and not bend Scripture to the whims of culture or to the whims of even family members. Because it doesn't lead down the path of life, but it leads towards judgment and destruction. The good news, though, is that God has not left us alone in this task. He has called us and equipped us to follow his will. Look at how Paul concludes this section in verse 7 and 8 with me. Paul says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, the call that Paul has expressed here for abstaining from sexual immorality is not Paul's call. These aren't the Apostle Paul's words or his opinion about how we are to live, but this is God's call upon our life. This is God's will for believers and for all mankind. God has called us, and Paul informs the Thessalonians, not for impurity, but for holiness. May we think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, which says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And Paul says there at the beginning of verse 8, he uses that word, therefore. So he's saying everything that's come before that because of what all that Paul has talked about, that we are to walk in the way that pleases the Lord, that we are to know the will of the Lord, that we are to seek sanctification, that we are to abstain from sexual immorality, and we're to seek to control our own bodies and to not wrong each other with our sexuality. That because of all of this, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. You see, Paul wants to anchor all these instructions not in who he is, but in who God is, that this is God's revealed plan for humanity. Paul is saying that we don't have the excuse of saying we don't know God's will or we don't know what God would have us do in this instance, but that we know the expectation for seeking sanctification in our life and following God's way. And if we choose to live in a way that is different than taught in Scripture We're not just ignoring the Apostle Paul's commands, but we are ignoring the commands of God. There is a weight in this statement from Paul, that he wants the Thessalonians to be aware of the eternal significance to these things that he is saying. But the good news, though, is that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we profess faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit helps us to walk in God's ways. Helps us to have the strength to obey even when it is difficult. And to correct us when we make mistakes. You see, this is the good news that even in the midst of all of this, that we serve a gracious God who will continue to forgive us when we submit our lives to him. And the process of sanctification that Paul is calling us to, it's a lifelong process. It's one that is continuing to be at work in us each and every day as we seek to follow Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that when we sin, we just give up and we say, I'm just going to live in my sin because I can't get control of it. And I'm just always going to struggle and wrestle with that sin. So it's not even worth fighting. But it means that daily we seek to die to ourselves, to be reliant upon the Holy Spirit, to seek the will of God, and to continue the process of becoming more and more like Him, to be refined by Him in all areas of our life. And it is through the Holy Spirit that the Thessalonians might walk in holiness. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit in our own lives that we may live in holiness as well. Paul's instructions today will only be lived out under the authority of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is where the true power for believers lays. Paul's instructions this morning give us a lot to think about and apply to our lives We live in a culture today that would argue against everything that I've spoken of today. And yet I have made a case today that this is the way God intends us to live. It is the best way to live our lives. So how do we move towards living in this manner? I believe that it will first and foremost require us to make it our mission as disciples of Christ to pursue holiness. I was reading this week about an animal called an ermine, which maybe you've heard of. It's a small white animal, and it's known for its snow white fur in the winter. Instinctively, this animal protects his white coat against anything that would soil it. And fur hunters will take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. They won't set a snare to catch him, but instead they find his home, which is usually in a cleft in a rock or a hollow in an old tree. And they'll smear the entrance with grime and the interior with grime. And then the hunters will set their dogs loose to find and to chase the ermine. The frightened animal will flee towards its home, but he won't enter his home because of the filth. Rather than soil his white coat, he's trapped by the dogs and captured while preserving his purity. You see, in our lives, we must be like an ermine that we seek purity in what we do, that we seek to pursue holiness and make it a priority to hold that as a high, uh, high importance in our lives, that we pursue it with our entire being. This should impact how we speak, how we live our lives, what we consume, and how we spend our time. It should be under the umbrella of seeking to pursue holiness. D.L. Moody one time said, "'It's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We are told to let our light shine, and if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness.'" Lighthouses don't ring bells and fire cannons to call attention to their shining, they just shine. So how do you know if you're growing in holiness, if you're striving to become more holy in your life? Well, one test of holiness is that you will also be growing in humility. Humility before God and humility before other men and women should be a marker in your life as you grow in holiness. Andrew Murray said that humility is the bloom and the beauty of holiness. But part of seeking holiness is that it will require that we also seek to live lives that are different from the normal. That's why my second suggestion is that we must be willing to live lives that are set apart from the world. And throughout Scripture, we see this idea of being set apart. It starts with God choosing his chosen people of Israel who are set apart for a purpose. And we see that trend continue throughout the Old Testament that God has set Israel apart as a nation for him. They are to be different. They are to live different. They have the law that they are to abide by. And they are to live in a different manner than other nations. We see it continue in Paul's instructions. makes me think of Romans 12.1, which tells us to not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but to renew our minds. That we are not to look just like the world. And it continues for the church today, for followers of Christ today, that we are to live lives that are set apart. We must be willing to look different than the world. It doesn't mean that we never engage the world. I don't believe that the answer is that we all just retreat alone. But as we live amidst the world, we must be willing to not engage in all the things that they engage in, to not look just like them, but there should be a difference. So what does it look like to live a life that's set apart? Well, you lead a life that's a reflection of Jesus Christ. You demonstrate that following Jesus in your life makes a difference. You show the love of Christ to others and you practice forgiveness as you are forgiven by Jesus Christ. And you live out the way of Jesus as shown in Scripture. I guarantee you that if you seek to adhere to the words of Scripture and submit your life to the way that Jesus lays out in Scripture, that your life will look different than the world. That your hope will be different than the world. That your convictions will be different than the world. That you will be different than the world as you set yourself apart, seeking after the Lord and seeking to grow in Him. And lastly, we must recognize the eternal significance of these things that Paul is speaking of. And we must repent, for judgment is coming. It's something we don't like to talk about a lot in this day and age. We, we reference old sermons, perhaps, in the back in the day, where people preached about sinners in the hands of an angry God, but we don't like to talk about judgment and repentance, and yet repentance is foundational to who we are As disciples of Christ, our journey towards holiness always begins with repentance. Repentance isn't just something we say. They're not just words that we say, but it is how we lead our lives after we are changed. It's the idea of turning from the way we are going before, repenting and turning and heading in a different direction. As we confess our sins and repent to the Lord and experience his forgiveness. A picture of repentance lived out that I want to share with you today is about Robert Carter III. He was part of an elite society in colonial America which consisted of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and Robert Carter III. Carter was the richest among them and owned more slaves than Washington and Jefferson put together, almost 500 of them. He owned a textile factory, about 20 plantations, a commercial bakery, and one-fifth share of the Baltimore ironworks. But in June of 1777, while suffering from what he later described as a fever heat from a smallpox inoculation, Carter experienced what he called a most gracious illumination of his spirit. Unlike the conversion of many, though, Carter's conversion went beyond pious-sounding words. To begin with, the slaveholder, who never intervened in overseer's disciplining of his own slaves— was now beginning to defend them openly. He caused a scandal when he told an overseer to return a slave's property to him based solely on the word of the slave. Even more scandalously, he began to worship at an integrated congregation. And then on September 5th, 1791, Carter reached the conclusion that his faith required him to free all of his slaves, the largest number of enslaved human beings ever freed in America by anyone. Not only did Carter arrange for the slaves' freedoms, but he also made provision for their support during their transition to freedom. Some of his peers, including Thomas Jefferson and other signers of the Declaration of Independence, objected to Carter's actions as subversive to the colony's social balance and racial relations and potential backlash by white workers against their new competitors for wage labor. Even so, Carter believed that his freedom compelled him to share that same freedom With all people. You see, as he repented, there was a change in how he lived. There is a change when we come to the Lord and when we repent of our sins. And repentance is so important because it's the first step in experiencing the grace of God. That is, only when we recognize that we are sinners, that we are broken men and women, and we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is no one on this earth who is not a sinner. And when we recognize that, and we turn to God, and we repent of our sin, and we ask Him to forgive our sins, that then, when we experience that forgiveness, we begin that path towards holiness, God's will for us, sanctification, that we would be sanctified in Him, that He would make us holy by His power, by His strength, not by our own doing, but by the grace of God. And so we live out this repentance in our lives as we pursue God with our whole being. And we encourage those around us who have not repented that they need to turn and repent and turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul's words today are meaningful in this day and age. They're countercultural to what the world will tell us, and yet they point to the key of life, which is Jesus Christ himself. There is no other way to live. There is no other way that will bring freedom and life except through Jesus Christ. I want to close with a word from Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher who wrote, that holiness is nothing else but the habitual and predominant devotion and dedication of soul and body and life and all that we have to God and esteeming and loving and serving and seeking him before all the pleasures and prosperities of the flesh. So may you be encouraged this week as you go out here to seek God in all that you do, to seek to grow in holiness, and to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in that endeavor. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word today. Lord, thank you that you have spoken to us and that you will continue to speak to us as we draw near to you. So Lord, guide us towards holiness in you. Lord, where there is sin that needs to be dealt with, we pray that you would bring it to our mind, that we would confess it and that we would experience your forgiveness. So Lord, do your work within us. Purify us and make us more and more like you, that we would reflect you to those around us, and that when that day comes, Lord, when you finish the process of sanctification in our lives, that it would be such a time of rejoicing and such a time of humility before you as as a gift that you alone can give us. So we place ourselves in your hands today trusting in your provision, trusting in the process that you are doing in our lives and submitting our lives to you as our Lord and Savior. I pray us all in Jesus' name. Amen.